0: Hello everyone and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Movies. Today I've got something a little different for you. My guest today is Ray Nowoszelski and he is the creator and producer of a new 10-part podcast series, a 10-episode series called George Bailey Was Never Born. And this is going to focus on uh, the insights into the movie It's a Wonderful Life from people from all walks of life, including many descendants of the people involved in making the film. And for those of you who have followed my work for a long time, you might remember an article I wrote several years ago called Old Man Potter Lived a Wonderful Life, uh, arguing that Potter, in fact, was the hero of the film. Well, the Uh, Producers of George Bailey Was Never Born don't necessarily agree with that, but they were kind enough to give me that time, and there will be one episode featuring an interview with yours truly. But there's nine other wonderful episodes in this podcast, which will premiere next week. But today we have an interview with the man responsible for creating this wonderful series. Ray, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Tom. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it.
0: It's great to talk to you again um, I, I gotta say it's probably one of the most unique projects i've I've ever heard of Maybe you could start by just telling everyone how did the germ of this idea occur uh, and and then how did it become a ten episode podcast on this classic movie
1: yeah it's it's a big story and in episode 10 we actually go meta and we tell the story of the making of this and my and my wife's sort of Long connection to the film, and um, so if anyone wants the really detailed story, I suggest go to episode ten called happy ending but uh the the short version is that my my grandmother, my mom's mom, saw it in the theater, one of the few in nineteen forty seven to actually go out and see it, and then around nineteen seventy five the year after it had dropped famously infamously into the public domain theoretically, although we go into that in episode four. Uh, uh, my mom saw it on TV, like a lot of other people started catching on to it, uh, became her favorite movie. And then I would say I probably then ended up seeing it every year of my life, you know, from the time I was born because uh, of it being my mom's favorite movie. And, and it became mine. And we've been this whole podcast, especially the first episodes, kind of a fan love letter, but it's just a lot of, a lot of people seem to have, uh, I know you have strong opinions about it. Uh, but, uh, (laughs) But a lot of people just have this sort of deep connection. It's like, this is what I want to see in the world. It just, you know, it just hit me in the gut. Like, that's what a lot of a lot of folks we interviewed kind of talk about. And it had that effect on me. And then, let's see, last year, um, to be honest, we had done a season one of a true crime, Black Lives Matter, St. Louis activist podcast called After the Uprising. And it had done just enough numbers that, like, we probably weren't going to get a season two or another meeting with iHeart if we were going to be honest. And then, like the universe, the angels uh, helped us out a little. And uh, in January of last year, we uh, pulled a rabbit out of a hat and got an NAACP Image Award nomination for outstanding podcast for that show. And I forwarded that to iHeart and I was like, you just got an NAACP nomination. And they were like, oh man, this is fantastic. Let's take a meeting about a season two and what else you got. And my wife had been saying, look, you for years you do these like exposés about these bad people and it's so hard to watch and listen to for some of us. And it's not who you really are. You're a nerd, you're a pop culture guy, you're a positive spirit. Can you do something that like, represents that and i said i always wanted to do this project about it's a wonderful life because i think once you start having conversations with people about this movie it goes to a million different interesting places so it's just like start with wonderful life and see where it goes and 150 conversations and and a year of production later here we are tom with 10 episodes that hopefully don't suck
0: (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure that they won't um what, what about the title? What, what uh, inspired the title of the podcast?
1: I think we, okay. So uh, we interviewed the family of Philip Van Doren Stern, who wrote the original short story, The Greatest Gift, on which this is based. And inherent to that 19, what was originally a 1938 outline that he wrote right off the bat was this concept of the multiverse, which is now almost overplayed, right? Like, DC multiverse, Marvel multiverse, that Oscar winning movie, uh, uh, everything all at once, you know, the Spider-Verse. It's like, Jesus, enough with the multiverse. But we were like, Philip originated Wonderful Life. He did it first. And in the movie, George is essentially shown the uh, and a part of the multiverse where uh, he had never been born and Bedford Falls had become Pottersville. And we thought to ourselves, it'd be really fun to approach this very late in the process, we realized we could bring the angel narrator from It's a Wonderful Life back, and he could be the one talking to our audience. And if he was talking to our audience, he's played by Roy Sillings, this Shakespearean theater actor who does an excellent job with him. And, and in fact, the family of the original actor who narrated, Joseph Granby, has uh, given their enthusiastic thumbs up on Roy taking over the, uh, this role. Uh, and in fact, Mark Granby plays Frank Capra in the voice you actually hear in the show which is the grandnephew of the original narrator but sorry for all the asides so the multiverse idea we thought well if the angel's coming to us and he's talking to us and he experienced the events of Bedford Falls in 1945 as a reality um that's not our reality obviously because if it was we would we'd be able to go there instead we know this story from a beloved Christmas classic so that must mean we did the math that we live in one of the parts of the multiverse where George Bailey was never born. And that's where the title came from. And we try to turn it into a positive message by the end that if you uh, if that if that's a if that makes you sad, then we all need to fill that space that George Bailey filled in his universe because he's not here.
0: (laughs) And and what what makes George Bailey heroic in It's a Wonderful Life?
1: Well, I know you and I disagree on that, right? And uh you and you said you thought it was one of the more unique uh podcast ideas. The folks at iHeart tell us they haven't heard anything like it, but you gave one of the most unique uh interviews of the whole podcast. And your perspective is very persuasive. And we let you we let you talk. We don't, you know, interrupt you too much with the angel to be like, I don't know, you know, we kind of let you lay out <laughs> your your case for why perhaps he's not heroic. Um I think largely, in my opinion, we've got a problem with uh, in our media where we've gotten rid of the the sense of traditional heroes with traditional values, and that can sound a little old-fashioned, uh, and now we only want to root for the anti-hero, so to speak, and I think one thing that makes George heroic is that he is willing to make sacrifices, He's that he's so if you're a rugged individualist, you will not find this characteristic heroic. But, uh, but he's, he's willing at times to put aside what might be called his own selfish ambitions, his own selfish dreams, at really time and time again, to try to do what he sees as the right thing for someone else in need. Almost to the, you know, we interviewed Dom Nero from Esquire, who said he wishes George would get off the cross, that, uh, that it can really mess you up to think the entire weight of the world in your community is resting on you making x x decision or y decision and that you know maybe the guy wouldn't have snapped on Christmas Eve over a missing eight thousand dollars if he if he'd taken a couple trips to New York with his wife and done a few selfish things So there's probably (laughs) a balance there right but but I think there's too few if I may go on for one more moment we've got this scene at the end of your episode episode three which is called Henry F Potter American Antihero and it's me nerding out with a bunch of comic book nerds in, in the real Riverdale, Haverhill, Massachusetts. And we're talking heroes and anti heroes. And what gets brought up is the new super, the latest Superman movie, which is now somewhat old, Man of Steel, where not only does he have to snap the bad guy's neck to win, but half of Metropolis gets destroyed. And, and you hear me point out that in the Superman that I grew up with, so the Superman 2, where he says, General Zod, care to step outside and they have a battle. Superman flies off and you hear the people of Metropolis go, oh, my gosh, he's a coward. He's leaving us behind. What the hell? We thought Superman was here to help us. And he's uh, look at Superman. And I think it's heroic that Superman was willing to look like a coward for a while to the people of Metropolis in order to ultimately serve their interests. And I think that's a concept that's completely gone away. But that's a total George Bailey, I think.
0: Yeah, I I hate to even tell you this. It's it's reminding me of my master's thesis, uh, written in huh. 1891. Um, <laughs> I, I actually did my, um, my thesis on, uh, Faulkner and his Yuckna Patafa uh, fiction. And that really was the point of my thesis that as, as you go along in the Faulkner novels, you know, the, the hero in the early on, like shoots the bad guy. Um, I can, I can still remember from 40 some years ago In reality, uh you know his his hand was um was steady as a rock or something and and by the end it is uh, it is the main character choosing not not to avenge whatever they were avenging i can't remember all the details but that was the idea that um faulkner's uh image of the uh the hero matured and and changed over time so that i think when he was a young man he felt inadequate, not being one, of the adult names kind of character that I, I'm probably, you know, talking about things that most people haven't read because, uh, why did I do Faulkner? I don't know. Uh, I was really into it when I was in my, uh, late teens and early twenties, but yeah, I mean, I think there is something to that, that sometimes it is more heroic to not, um, you know, yeah, to, to risk being called a coward. Um, and, uh, I am not familiar with the the multiverse thing that you're talking about but
1: uh well I mean, actually yeah. well the multi, but the multiverse by the way uh around the mid 1950s science uh, subatomic science and I'm not an expert on this by any means maybe season 2 uh but my understanding is that science began to uh postulate that it was actually quite probable that we do live in a multiverse it's that idea that every possible every time you're at a road and you could turn left or turn right actually in another universe whichever choice you make in this one you did take that other one and then endless pockets of universes pop up from all these all all these possibilities and that's where kind of probability and what we do see with subatomic particles starts to make sense so i don't know if that is the world we live in or not but i do know philip van Doren stern was a was a, a, fic, a nonfiction writer like myself who did bios of Abraham Lincoln and his assassin and these other people, but he had this interest in fantasy and he was super early on to this idea, uh, uh, you know, starting with the the wish to never be born and be granted that wish. So uh, we, we just thought it'd be fun to play with that concept now since it seems to be such a hot thing. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and I, I am familiar with the idea of multiverse, but that one particular movie or cartoon that you were referring to. I, I haven't seen it. I, the other one that comes to mind real fast, and we'll get back to the uh, the podcast, is I, it just popped into my head. There's a Leave It to Beaver episode where, for whatever reason, Eddie Haskell is trying to pick a fight with Wally. And, you know, it's understood by the, the viewer and just about everybody else that if Wally really fought him, he would trounce him. But for whatever reason in that episode, Wally decides to to back down and of course everybody calls him a coward and then at the end Eddie comes and apologizes and you know thank you. thanks for not taking me apart out there in the schoolyard you know <laughs> so
1: I remember uh, that now that you mention it I think I might have seen that episode yeah <laughs> it is a it,
0: it's a legitimate theme as far as what is the hero you know um
1: well, and in my opinion so the hero isn't simply someone who executes well like ah oh, this per- this person always comes through and saves the day to to me in order for someone to qualify as a hero they got to save the day uh despite the um obstacle of their own code or ethics whatever that might be you got to have that code or ethics that makes it harder for you to accomplish that heroic goal and somehow you still you still do it right and that and that can be used against you by your enemies because maybe they don't have ethics and they don't have that code and therefore They can be more effective than you, but you are held back by your own choice to hold yourself back by whatever it is you've decided is your ethical framework. (laughs) That's what the recipe is, I think.
0: Yeah, no, well said. Uh, I listened to the trailer and, uh, you know, I was taken aback by the fact that one of the guests or at least one of the episodes is Jimmy Stewart's daughter. Can you talk a little bit about how that connection was made and maybe uh, talk a little bit about some of the other guests besides yours truly?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, you're you're obviously the you're the most interesting one, but uh, everybody everybody brought a different perspective and it kind of becomes this potpourri of these like themes explored in each episode. And uh, yeah, we what we tried to do is we didn't we didn't want to do a making of. that wasn't going to be our purview but we did want to know who qualified as the essential creators of this that added a bit of their ethos and it all kind of came together into the the final stew that is a movie and as a guy who makes documentaries i know that movies tend to be far more collaborative than the the auteur theory would would have us believe and uh and so i want so we ended up interviewing the next of kin of the original short story writer philip van Doren stern um the uh clifford odette's son uh Clifford uh, didn't even get a credit in the final movie but we found out he had really contributed a lot to the first act of it's a wonderful life and then we actually ended up using voice alike from a um a, a, bi- a biography that was written by the nephew of the husband wife's uh, screenwriters of, of it's a wonderful life Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett and then uh we got the Jimmy Stewart's daughter Kelly Stewart Harcourt and we got um two uh frank capra's grandchildren frank capra the third who claims he was the closest to frank but we weren't able to verify and uh and then also uh monica capra hodges and then her daughter who's become a friend of mine Han- hannah hannah ermy um so yeah there's all these like next of, and then and then we kind of go off into all kinds of folks like yourself who basically have put themselves into the wonderful life arena by Writing something or saying something or recording something interesting that's different than anyone else's take, and so it's a bunch of those folks as well. But as far as Kelly goes, um, I got a lot of admiration for her. She, um, she was born, uh, she's got a twin sister, but they're the only two biological children to Jimmy Stewart, and they were born about five years after It's a Wonderful Life came out. And she became an anthropologist, went to Africa and like studied gorillas with some of the great anthropologists, and because. Jimmy discouraged her from a life of like Hollywood and the you know the entertainment industry. he's like no no wait I actually I can do it Jimmy. So let me see if I can do this. Well, Ke- Kelly, you know, yeah, there's other things in life. Go see the gorillas and nah, sorry, <laughs> I, I can do better than that, but that's my. <laughs> and I've become buddies with a little bit buddies with Kelly. She's been very sweet and very supportive when she heard the trailer, uh, messaged and said, "Wow, how much hard work went into this?" and you know, uh, the thing that's so beautiful about my dad's movie is that, you know, you can interpret it in so many different ways and you've taken it in a direction for a new generation. She's just, she's so sweet. So I hope we, I hope she ends up be, being a lifelong friend because that would be a, a, a real privilege for me.
0: <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Um, it, it's it also interesting. And, and we could talk a little bit about uh, the, the episode where, where you interviewed me um, the, the politics of it's a wonderful life. Now, most people have heard, that um you know the fbi was interested in the movie and the people who wrote it because it was uh, uh suspected of being communist propaganda my, my understanding is that hackett and goodrich weren't really communists but they knew some communists and there could have been some some people who worked on the script that were uncredited that were hmm. communists i also know that capra was a republican and a, and a roosevelt hater in good standing so <laughs> it's It's right. just ironic that that it seems almost like, look, I just want to make a movie uh and uh you know this is a good story, and I'm just gonna make it. Do you have any insight into you know how he could be involved in something that at least led some people to believe that it was that it was uh subversive in that way?
1: I think that was probably the magic of Capra is that if you were a Republican, you could say, oh, this is like and old-fashioned values christian you know uh you know a- a small town loving like everything that one might associate with classic republicanism like that that's obviously what capra's giving us here well and if you were if you're a liberal you watch this and you're like obviously like you know this is kind of like uh, an argument for some kind of light socialism or fdrism although as you point out he was a republican who was uh, a vowed anti-new dealer now he did of course work with fdr during the war uh, Frank Capra was uh, he reported to the head of the US Army during the entirety of World War Two, and essentially, I still think he, he needs even more credit than he's already been given for the way, when we think about what we were fighting for in World War Two, you know, we, but, uh, you know, when we look back on those brave people who did it. Uh, I think he planted that message. There could have been a lot of different versions of how we thought about what we were doing during those years. And I think Frank Capra developed the version that we still kind of hold today when we think about that war and and the greatest generation. But we did learn, though, uh, from Mark Harris, who wrote Five Came Back, he interviewed and um, he did that great Netflix doc of the same name. And he had found a meeting that happened in 1938 when Frank was doing pre-production on Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. So he goes to D.C. and then he goes to a press conference at the Oval Office. And at the end, he gets to shake hands and exchange a few uh, words with FDR. And he said after that that he was... It appears he had a minor conversion, not a political one, because I think his philosophy st- stayed the same. But I think he became much more of an FDR supporter and less of a hater at, of the man. And the idea was that FDR had this sort of Hollywood presence, like, he, like Capra knew a star when he saw one, right? And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and that was it. He was a powerful guy. And he was just like, ooh, I like how this guy pitches the public his ideas I I do the same thing in my movies, you know, in this way that's ultra relatable and
0: well, give a Republican a war and you can get them on board with anything. That's that's yeah. my observation. <laughs> um, so, uh, and by the way, when you make your ten uh, part series on World War Two and you need that descending voice, I'm your Huckleberry for that too.
1: Oh yeah, the, the 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 war that always gets held up as the reason for all other wars, right? Like uh, not
0: not so much that, but uh, I I I mean, th- this is a digression, but. I just don't see it as the win everybody does. I mean, yeah, it was good. Hitler was destroyed, but at the cost of giving a much worse empire that killed far more people than Hitler, uh, half of Europe for 50 years, I, you know, I think there was another way to handle it uh, than that. Uh, Hitler originally wanted to fight Stalin and we should have just let him do it. And uh, they would have both uh, destroyed each other somewhere near the Russian border.
1: My, my views have been adjusting, I guess, but uh, I've been a lifelong uh anti-war and non-interventionist type and uh so that's interesting uh, any any argument that makes that that gets us in fewer wars i uh i think is at least worth considering.
0: yeah yeah same here um just to make a short reference to to the episode that i did and for anyone listening who doesn't know i had written an article i can't remember if it was 2015 or 17 called Old man Potter lived a wonderful life, arguing that he's actually the hero. And of course, you know, Jimmy Stewart's character, some of it was tongue in cheek, calling him the devil incarnate and things like that. But I think, and I don't think I use these words in it, but it's the invisible hand. It's Adam Smith's observation that people pursuing their own self interest uh will do more good for society than people who are actually trying to do good for society even with the best of intentions and i thought i I might get a comment from you in that vein because it it, there's two things one thing in the movie potter says at one point you saved the building and loan and and i saved everything else and then stewart says uh well, some people say you stole everything else, and uh, and Potter replies to him. Those are the envious ones, George, the suckers, the right? Suckers. Yeah. But um, when you think about it, you know, where's the multiverse if Potter hadn't saved or stolen everything else? Okay, where would Bedford Falls be? And that's just the one thing that I think is just never considered by people who look at the story and just say, we we got to have more George Bailey's. And the other thing I would point out, I think we just had a guy who had a, a, a very popular and for a while wildly successful venture. His name is Sam Bankman Freed, who said, I'm not doing this for myself. I'm just doing it to, for the greater humanity. Mm-hmm. And it kind of turned out how George Bailey's building alone almost turned out in the movie. Any comment?
1: Yeah. My, well, my comment is that you told us almost verbatim that in the podcast, plus a lot more, and it's super compelling. And I think you're going to enjoy, we cut between you quoting from Potter and quoting from George to the movie. So it's sort of like you'll start a sentence and then you'll hear Potter finish your words and then you come back in. And it, <laughs> I, I think it makes, I think it makes for, you make for a compelling and interesting argument. It, it is interesting to consider. We only see the multiverse where where Potter ran roughshod over the town without George there to stand up to him. But, but in that very specific instance of the sliding doors of the Great Depression and the run on the bank and Potter essentially saves the rest of the town, but it's painted in, in that scene, right? As like him attempting his, to use that crisis to finally get the building and loan out from under George. And because we're rooting for George, that's our point of view. We see that as a bad thing sure it is interesting to analyze these things because if you want to nerd out on fiction and you see it it, everything is about point of view isn't it like we're all the protagonists of our own stories and we all think we're what no matter how terrible or amazing we are we all think we're we're the good guys uh and uh all you got to do is and that's what i love about movies roger ebert said movies are empathy machines they let you walk in other people's shoes and i'm I think that's what's so powerful about him, but you always kind of, kind of ask yourself, like, what if I wasn't in that point POV? What if I was in that other person's POV? Then all of a sudden George looks like a, looks like kind of a a whiny little, little baby. Yeah, <laughs> Seeing right. it from your point of view.
0: <laughs> um, but yeah. And, and I, again, you know, that's not the, uh, that's not the takeaway that uh, 99.9% of the sane people in the world uh, uh, take from it, that they're, uh You know, George is heroic and certainly he's well-intentioned and, and, um, you know, the other thing that strikes me about the movie, and I don't know if, if anyone in the series talks about this is there, there is kind of a, a sense that that, that town and towns like it don't really exist anymore. Like it, it was plausible for what happened in it's a wonderful life to really occur in a place like Bedford Falls, which I think is, is supposed to be in the Finger Lakes, I can't remember which one of the Finger Lakes towns claims it was the um, the basis for it. But um,
1: Seneca Falls,
0: Seneca Falls, that's right. So you know, you just can't imagine. In like today, I live out in the country. You know, I live in um, you know in a town that I think has twenty eight hundred people in it, and I still couldn't name any of my neighbors. I got, I know one. And I actually did try to, um, introduce myself to them, uh, when we first got here and like tried to have a bunch of people over, just nobody responded. (laughs) So they probably thought we were kooks or something. We thought let's meet the neighbors, you know, and, uh, but it's just, uh, you know, something that even, even like Potter, like you would never meet the Potter today. Right. Uh, um, you wouldn't get access to him, um, even to say something nasty to him. So, uh. There is something very nostalgic about watching the movie.
1: Uh, well, and Brian Alexander, who uh, had had been an investigative journalist for some time, he tells this story in one of our episodes because we we spent about. I guess it depends on how you count it, but roughly three episodes inside primarily Seneca Falls, New York, uh, looking uh, we you know, I did a road trip. I did a road trip at the very top of this project a year ago, last October. One of the most fun things I ever did, Tom, where uh, I we had picked six towns in America that we believed there was an argument had been an, an inspiration or a partial inspiration for Bedford Falls. And we thought, let's just drive in, you know, start talking to people about this and see who, who we meet and what we can learn about the state of Bedford Falls today. And the last one we got to ended up being the one that would dominate the show, Seneca Falls. Now, I was super skeptical uh, because as the manufacturing base has left these towns, tourism has become super essential to their survival. And everybody's trying to Disneyfy their towns to make it look like a small town from a movie so that it's quaint enough that people actually want to live there or want to come visit. And Seneca found the perfect hook. We're the real Bedford Falls, we swear. And I thought it was total BS. And then I don't, i I I'd have to, all it would take is some light poking around to find that it was you know a total house of cards. I actually kind of believe they have a really strong case for for why it may well be the the, the closest, um, and that's why we spend three episodes and we meet all these modern corollaries in town to the characters in the movie. So you know instead of so uh we violet bick was a hairdresser and we found uh, a re a woman who runs the hair sal- who owns the hair salon who some in town have said for years was sort of a real violet bick and so on and so on hmm. um and uh but in that in the episode where we really dive into the economic state of small towns uh brian alexander who had written a book called uh i think it was glass house uh, um you know he, he told a story about going back to his mother's small town with her and she looked around at it as she, after she hadn't been there for decades, and she cried, and she didn't even want to get out of the car, and she was like, "Let's just go." And he felt the same way about his own small town, and he thought he'd missed a really interesting story as an investigative journalist, so he we went in search of that, and um I'm trying to think this connects to your very the very top of your question, but uh but you know he he kind, of, "Oh, Mr. Potter, that you wouldn't meet the Mr. Potters." He said, "You know the Mr. Potter's now." At least Potter lived there. He might've been in, like an a-hole depending on how you see it, but he lived in town. You could go see him and complain about this. <laughs> you could shun him. Uh, but these guys live, you know, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, or then they've got another house in the Hamptons and they don't go to these communities. They don't want any responsibility to these communities. They the, they bring in the Walmart, they suck the money out of town to their shareholders and that's what they that's what they do. Um, anyway that was his take what's your what's your take
0: (laughs) well I I'll tell you this that I live in uh, about half an hour northeast of Buffalo and um, we used to we used to drive down to the southern tier of New York into Cattaraugus County and when I was in my 20s I remember I had um, one of my first cars and it broke down in a place called Cattaraugus New York and I'm telling you there's that Twilight Zone episode where the guy similar thing happens and he goes to the, the the soda fountain you know where they made the the old time ice cream sodas and uh they i walked into like a drugstore like that it was just hadn't changed in 50 years you know and it had the the fountains and everything and i ordered like a ice cream soda and i think i did this before i ever saw that twilight zone episode but um like that's gone now you know and and i at least i feel like this was like the um early to mid 1980s. And I, I just caught the last taste of that, you know, um, the last uh, and and in and, and the town down there, uh, nearby Randolph, New York, there was a five and 10 Ben Franklin's and we were kids, we'd go into that. And that was, you know, essentially the same as it had been in the 1950s. So, um, you know, there's, there, there's just almost a feel um, to those, to those towns that have pretty much it's, it's pretty much gone except where they're trying to preserve it as some kind of tourist attraction, which maybe Seneca Falls is doing that.
1: Yeah. But I mean, even I think Brian Alexander, they are, they've got uh, something called cafe 19. Uh, they didn't have a coffee house for the longest time. And so the, the local generations bank, which was run by this community banker named Menzo case, whose favorite movie was wonderful life. And he, uh, had been actively trying to get something called Bailey Park affordable housing built with habitat for humanity in town so that uh, working people could more afford to live in these towns. Because as they spruce them up into looking like movie small towns, uh, you know, uh, the uh, you got to you got to build the you got to build the the soda fountain. You got to build the ice cream shop. You got to build this, that and the other thing. What you don't build is the houses. So the people who serve the coffee or, or serve the ice cream don't have to drive in from an hour out from where they can actually <laughs> afford to live. Uh, and, uh, and sadly, only weeks ago, our real George Bailey Menzo case from Generations Bank passed away suddenly of a heart attack. And uh, talk about, a, a, in episode 10, we kind of uh, go lightly into this idea that like, without this guy, Seneca Falls and those who wanted affordable housing in that town are gonna find out what life would be like without their george bailey because sometimes it just takes one guy one visionary who's like i'm gonna get this done and even though it's totally doable by other folks once that guy's gone there's you know who's gonna do it who's gonna push it who's gonna make it happen that, 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 i took it sad tom i know i'm sure you want to keep it <laughs> keep it up you're doing a movie podcast but uh yeah that, that was something unfortunate that happened recently
0: yeah, I am sorry to hear that. And I know you've got a very well-behaved little guy that's waiting uh, for your for your attention. So uh, before we wrap up, why don't you um, just tell people where they can find the podcast and where they can find more of your work?
1: Thank you, sir. Uh, well, they, uh, you know, Go to your podcast app right now. Don't wait because you'll forget. Go right now to wherever you get your podcast and look up George Bailey was never born. And please subscribe because every subscriber helps tell iHeart that maybe we're cool and we can do winning podcasts and then maybe they green light more of them. So that'd be really kind. And maybe you'll actually like it. And uh, since your episodes drop in the week of Thanksgiving, I just want to say it's so hard to find a podcast when you're on a road trip going to Thanksgiving dinner with the, with three, four generations in the car. Like, what's everybody going to listen to? How about a podcast about It's a Wonderful Life? It's It's got stuff that's going to appeal to everybody, even the general Zer who's rolling their eyes going, I've never seen a black and white movie, and I don't care. They're gonna... <laughs> in fact, we keep saying, I'll hear from people who say, uh, oh, I've never seen it. I still haven't seen It's a Wonderful Life. And I say, well, now you don't have to. Just experience it through the podcast. You'll get the whole thing. Uh, and so uh, anybody who wants a little more information or wants to uh, likes websites, I guess, go to SaveGeorgeBailey.com where you'll find out everything you would possibly want to know about about this podcast, how you can join the mission, how you can host a, a, a For George Bailey Day on Saturday, December 9th, your own home screening of It's a Wonderful Life at the same time as hopefully hundreds or maybe thousands of other people around the country doing the same uh, that we're trying to push that through and, and so on. So SaveGeorgeBailey.com. Um, you'll, if you go to that site, you'll be able to find all our social medias. So follow us wherever you do social and uh, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, especially the iHeart app. I'm sure they would love us to say.
0: Sounds good. And we'll link to savegeorgebailey.com on the show notes page. Ray, it's been, it's been a blast as it was the last time I got to talk to you. Hopefully, we'll, we'll find another reason uh, sometime soon. And uh, thanks very much for stopping by.
1: It'd be a lot of fun. Always have a great conversation with you, Tom. Thank you. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm not in love. Don't tell me it's so I'm not in love. I want you to know I'm not in love. Don't
1: tell me.